everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Be So Dramatic. My name is Rachel and this is the podcast where I talk to different people in the entertainment industry to discover what their job involves and how they got there. For this week's episode, I have with me CJ Johnson. CJ is so many different things and I will try and be as succinct as possible in listing this, but he is the president of the Film Critics Circle of Australia. He is the film critic for Nightlife on ABC Radio. He is the head lecturer in screen storytelling at Sydney Film School. He is a lecturer in cinema history and he's also a screenwriter. CJ has had a very interesting journey getting to where he is today, being a lecturer and a critic um, by working in so many different fields in the industry. So I was very interested to obviously hear about um, what decisions led to where he is today. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, you can give us a rating on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you are listening to your podcasts. And without further ado, let's jump in. CJ, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. As I was literally just saying to you, the first in-person podcast that I've done in over a year now because of COVID, Um, how are you doing? Oh, good. Well, welcome back to the studio. I'm good, you know, I suppose. All things considered with the current state of the world, things are okay. Mm-hmm. It's not raining today or at least at the moment in Sydney. So that's one thing we can be thankful for. Yeah. It definitely said that it was supposed to rain this week. Oh, of course. Um, it's going to rain forever. <laughs> unfortunately. That's true. So forever all we can hope for now is, is moments when it's not. Yes, that's very true. Although I don't mind the rain. It's very moody. It's very cozy. Maybe that's just the drama in me that likes it. I don't know. <laughs> For those listeners who don't know, Sydney's been, it's been raining in Sydney for four months now. <laughs> yes. Yes, it has. Um, and that's okay. Because as you say, it's always going to rain. So, you know. Um, so I, I am going to have to read off my phone for this one because you have so much um, of your uh, slashiness in your career, <laughs> which we all tend to. Um, so forgive me, listeners, for not being able to remember this. Uh, so CJ, you are the president of the Film Critics Circle of Australia. The, you're the film critic for the Nightlife on ABC Radio. Yep. On ABC Radio, um, head lecturer in screen storytelling at Sydney Film School. The lecturer in cinema around town is what you said. So um, you were doing it at the Art Gallery recently. Yeah, I do a series of uh, lectures at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and at private clubs around Sydney as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, uh, we can talk about that later. Yes, and you're also a screenwriter. Mm. Um, So that's a whole bunch of different things. And I'm very interested to know where your interest in the entertainment industry as a whole first started out. Watching movies as a kid. Okay. Absolutely. My entire life, I think, was formed by those Friday nights that I'd spend at home alone when my parents went out watching movies on television. And when I was a kid, when I was a boy, and this will age me instantly, the way that you watched movies on television was that there was a gentleman on television called Bill Collins, and he (laughs) would have been before your time. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think he only died 
a few years ago now, but he lived to a ripe old age. I think he lived into his 90s. Wow. And he was a movie presenter. So, and as I say, this is this is my generation, not yours. This was terrestrial free-to-air television. No internet, no streaming services, no choice, really. There were three commercial networks and two other networks, SBS and ABC. And on the three commercial networks, movies were shown all the time and in a very standardized way. So on Friday and Saturday nights and Sunday nights, generally at 8.30 p.m., you would watch movies. And on Friday nights, on first, he was on all the different networks. I think he actually was on all three of the different commercial networks at some point or another, Bill Collins. You know, he moved around or maybe just two of them. On Friday nights at 8.30 p.m., he would show Bill Collins' Golden Years of Hollywood. <laughs> so he'd show a movie at 8.30 and then he'd show a second movie at 10.30. And so, you know, once with ads, they generally ended up around two hours. But he would introduce them. So... He would introduce the first film and he would come on and he would talk about it and talk about the stars and talk about the director and talk about the production of the film. And he would also talk about sort of gossip around the production of the film. He was very <laughs> gossipy. And these were classic films from the golden years of Hollywood, which I guess he defined as sort of late 30s into the 1950s, essentially. So a lot of films from the 1940s mainly, which I would suggest is one of the greatest decades in the history of uh, Hollywood movie making anyway, if not the greatest. So... Then, uh, at the halfway mark through the movie, he would come back and he would tell you a little bit more about the movie, like an intermission piece oh. of information. And that's where it would get a bit more gossipy. So we would start out at the beginning with, you know, the director or the actors and, you know, then a bit more gossipy in the intermission. Then it would end and then he would introduce a second movie. And then he wouldn't come back at for intermission for that one, but he would tie it into the first one. So always the movies were thematically linked. So, for example, they might both star Humphrey Bogart. And so the first one might be a more famous Humphrey Bogart film like The Big Sleep or The Maltese Falcon or even Casablanca. And then the second one would be a deeper cut, a more obscure one. So like They Drive By Night or... Um, High Sierra or Key Largo or something like this. And he would talk about the two of them in the break between them in relation to each other. So how they spoke to each other and how they both fit into Bogart's career and this, that and the other. So you might see, you know, the Maltese Falcon and then like later you'd see High Sierra. And so, so you saw the Maltese Falcon and you saw him play a hero. Well, now watch him play a villain in this earlier film. Mm. Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And I would watch all this stuff religiously. And that is how I got my first, I suggest, movie education, which is watching Bill Collins introduce these films. And it was very, very, very important to me because not only was it contextualizing cinema by showing you two films that were linked, you know, either by their director or by their star or by their themes or their subject matter, or even by their costume designer, do you know what I mean? Or by their studio, which was instantly engaging, you know, little boy me in a sort of a deeper understanding of, of what films were and how they were made and who made them, et cetera, et cetera, and why they made them. But it also gave you, you know, context and it gave you two for the price of one, you know, so, yeah, you could, yeah. could, could, so it gave you a theme. It gave you a subject. You weren't just watching a movie tonight. You were examining the career of Humphrey Bogart through the prism of two of his movies. Mm. So that was my first cinema education, but it, not only gave me a whole lot of films, it gave me Bill Collins. And the older I get and the more I do things like what I'm currently doing uh, as sort of the majority of my sort of work life is doing these independent lect lectures on the history of cinema and on various aspects of cinema at uh, sort of hoity-toity lovely places like the art gallery <laughs> and private clubs in Sydney, etc. I'm I realise I'm kind of turning into a bit of a Bill Collins. In other words, what is sort of this first half of my life has all boiled down to is 
I suppose for want of a better word, an expertise in the history of cinema and what cinema is and what cinema means and what films are and what their deeper meaning is within the cultural context and my ability to explain them. And that's what I liked about Bill Collins. He explained to the little boy me all of that stuff um, in a very personable, upbeat, personality-filled, enthusiastic, passionate, entertaining, engaging, fun way, which is what I bring to my lectures, I, I like to think. And, well, frankly, I know I do. So... I realized that this sort of funny man on the television telling me about classic Hollywood movies and gossiping about them really, really, really inspired everything I went on to do with my life. And sort of I deviated from the path of becoming a new version of him by sort of having a crack at all the different disciplines. I was a professional actor. I was a oh, professional wow. stage director. I was a professional playwright. And of, of all the sort of active hands-on disciplines, that was the one that I was the most successful at. I had seven produced plays and some of them are still produced all around the world to this day. Uh, one of them called The Dog Logs is still produced all the time. Um, and then I uh, made a bunch of short films. I uh, went to film school. I co-directed uh, a feature film. Uh, I did script editing. I wrote screenplays and ultimately I've now ended up you know, back teaching screenwriting, screen storytelling at Sydney Film School and doing these independent lectures. And then along the way, I think the inevitable thing happened, which was I became a film critic. And so I think about 12 or 13 years ago, I started being the chief film critic for uh, Nightlife on ABC Radio, which is ABC Radio's national flagship program, nighttime program. Uh, and I, I started that during the Tony Delroy's, Delroy years, and now I do it with Philip Clark and Indira and I do. And um, it sort of continues to be my base of operations as a critic. And it sort of all farms out from there. And over those 12 or 13 years of being a critic, my cinema education has grown exponentially as well. And what I'm interested in has grown exponentially and everything. So it all, all leads up to a, a point where now I stand in front of people and um, teach them about cinema in an, as an engaging way possible, having poked my toe in in most of the different areas of how it's actually made. Mm. I think that highlights such a common thing in our industry, which we were saying before, and you said, I bet you have people on the podcast who do so many different things. And it's true. I think every creative has kind of, well, most creatives have dipped their toe in different things and pivoted as to where their interest is and um, I guess what they want to explore. And usually speaking, it's like people will tend to try their hand at acting and then be like, you know, what's really interesting me, this sort of thing. And they pivot because I think acting is one of those um, careers in the entertainment industry that's accessible. It's the one that when, when you don't know a lot about the industry, you go, oh, actors are in the industry. I like movies. I should like acting, right? And, you know, being an actor myself, I understand <laughs> that. Um, so did you first start um, going into, you know, working in the industry as an actor? Was oh, yeah. that the, okay. Yeah, I was a professional stage actor for about um, a little more than half a decade, I suppose. I, I lived in the United States. I lived in New York City and I operated out of New York City and did a lot of regional theater in the United States because that's how it worked at the time. It probably still does. There's this huge network. I mean, COVID sort of destroyed everything, but there's this huge network of regional theaters all across the United States. Like there are so many cities 
cities in the United States. You know, it's massive and vast. And most of these cities have theatres, have regional theatres. And what they do is, you know, they'll put on Henry V or they'll put on the Merry Wives of Windsor or they'll put on Hamlet. And what they'll do is, let's say they're, so I did I did a year of Romeo, okay? And <laughs> a year? A year because I did it in two different places. It was my year of, I mean, I wasn't doing it consistently for a year. Oh, okay, because you know, I was like 52 weeks of Romeo. <laughs> no, but you know, like in an, in, a, in an actor's life, any given year where you've got two leads in two different theatres, that's that's kind of, that, that was the year you did Romeo. So there was a year that I did Romeo twice at okay. two different theatres. I did it at um, the Mill Mountain Theatre in Roanoke, Virginia, and then I did it at the Baltimore Shakespeare Festival. And both of those were theatres that did the same thing, which is basically what they do is they go to New York City and they cast the leads and the major supports out of New York, and then they cast the minor roles locally. So in the case of Romeo and Juliet, so myself as Romeo, and so the Juliet, and so the Mercutio, and the Friar, and the nurse, and maybe one or two other roles, Tybalt certainly, maybe a couple of other roles. So maybe eight characters would have been cast out of New York. And then the rest of the cast, which might have had another eight or nine or ten actors, would have all been cast locally. And so you're at different pay rates, of course. And so it's kind of this weird hierarchical stratified system, actually, because you're on an equity rate, you know, an equity regional theatre eight being cast out of New York and you've been flown in and you're being put up at a hotel. And the others are mm. on kind of this sort of dodgy rate. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I remember what they were on and it was pretty dodgy. But so that's how it works. And um, that's sort of how the regional system works. So I did that. And so my year of Romeo, I did these Romeos relatively back to back that way. And, you know, I did that for a while. I, and um, that was very, very entertaining. And I, I really enjoyed that. And then I decided at a certain point I wanted to come back to Australia and I sort of pivoted into stage directing and screenwriting. But you're right, acting is the sort of seems to be the it's the one that the most people think they can do and therefore the most people try and do it and of course there's only so many jobs so it's probably also got the most number of people who enter it who think they can do it who don't end up doing it because you know it's fewer people who think that they can compose music for the screen for example you kind of know <laughs> yeah. whether you can do that or not but a lot of people think that they can act well, obviously you can if you were being cast as Romeo. <laughs> I was a good Romeo. I loved playing Romeo. <laughs> Romeo is a good role. People stiff their nose up at Romeo. They're like, oh, it's not Hamlet. Oh, it's not Macbeth. Oh, it's not, you know, what's Romeo? He's a bit of a sop. But Romeo is a cool role. He has he has at least two sword fights. <laughs> I think, you know, Hamlet's a bit of a, a complainer. Romeo seems to be okay. He's just in love and he does some silly things. I got to play <laughs> Hamlet at university. Hamlet is a bloody good role. <laughs> it's a really good role. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um and what made you go to New York? Because my mother's American. Oh okay. Um so I I I I wanted to just give it a crack. Okay. I just wanted to try living over there. And I enjoyed it until I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. It was that sort of situation. Okay. Mm. And then what made you so then you went into um directing theater. Mm. So what I mean you know, when you're doing theatre and you're an actor, I guess you can see, oh, like what this director is doing, that interests me. I think I have something to say. Was that what the shift was? Were you doing that in New York or did you do it when you came back? I, I wrote a play in New York that got produced on a sort of relatively minor level off off Broadway. Uh, as they say, off-off-Broadway, by the way, for those who don't know but have always heard the expression, off-off-Broadway is a theatre in Manhattan or in New York City that's 99 seats or under. Off-Broadway is 299 seats or under and then Broadway is 
it was somewhere in Midtown Manhattan that's over 299 seats. And so it's okay. all to do with rates of pay and unions and safety standards and all of this. So an off-off-Broadway theatre can get away with, you know, really dodgy safety standards. But a Broadway <laughs> theatre, you know, has to have all these sort of things. It has to have this amount of unionised workers. So it's actually about the amount of seats mm. and the amount of, therefore, revenue you can generate on any given performance. Mm. Um, so I had this play done at an off-off-Broadway place and I was acting in off-Broadway shows and off-off-Broadway shows and regionally and yeah I directed that one and then I came back here and went to NIDA to the director's course at NIDA which was fantastic fascinating it was a great course under Peter Kingston and um, I then started playwriting in my first couple of years immediately out just to get work going just to generate work and what I did was the first play I wrote was The Dog Logs which has been my most successful play so I had a hit out of the straight out of the bat so I very quickly pivoted to playwriting but I formed a, a collaboration straight off the bat a friendship a working relationship with a guy named Michael Piggott who then became my ongoing director so he directed all of my plays okay and so it was great because what I wasn't a big fan of in theatre direction was precisely what he loved which was kind of the repetition of watching run-throughs of taking notes of all of this sort of th stuff so I got to sit in as much as I wanted to and I got to have as much input to him as I wanted and he was a very very collaborative director and you know he was also you know a, operated as a dramaturg so the two of us operated as this lovely unit where I was allowed to obviously always make directorial decisions and he was always allowed to make playwriting decisions to me so it was like there were three of us you know we were both one and a half people doing three jobs do you know what I mean yeah <laughs> and um so that was really good and that I would encourage anyone to do you know to find to find a, a creative partner especially in a writer-director relationship was really really good and we got in on the ground floor of a fantastic theater company called the Darlinghurst Theater Company so I was one of the very few plays produced there and so they just produced my plays as we went along so it was really really great so we had a great producing partner too so it was a very very fun comfortable energetic passionate reciprocal collaborative environment that I was able to generate those plays and then they could go off and have lives outside of Michael and I but they always started with Michael directing with me writing at the Darlinghurst and that was that was a terrific period um, and then I then just I suppose at some point I started reviewing a little bit and then I guess my passion for movies reminded me of itself and it became so overwhelming basically i was working with all these theater people and very much in the theater scene and the, the, there was there was this unbelievably energetic explosive cool independent theater scene around that time this was in this was sort of between 2000 and 2000 and 12 or 2015 really it was astonishing it was so exciting the old Fitzroy and this and that and the old Belvoir Street downstairs and all of this stuff was happening and all these amazing people were involved and I won't start naming names but it was a very very vibrant exciting scene and we were very 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 much a part of it um, not only in terms of working and in terms of our plays but also in terms of social you know the social life and the social scene and it was sort of all centered around Surrey Hills and it was that's where I was living at the time it was thrilling mm. and it was exciting it was relatively debauched it was it was all sorts of fun um but then i just realized that there were people within that scene who truly loved theater and i didn't truly love theater really? I, I i truly loved 
show business. I truly loved art for people to watch. But I realized that what I truly loved more than theater was movies. And so I knew that at some point I had to shit or get off the pot. And so I suppose moving into criticism and then I took the natural leap and went to afters uh, in 2009 as a director. And even though basically that's not how my career has panned out, like I am now currently not a working, practicing film director. That year at AFTA, studying directing was invaluable to me in terms of just deepening my own relationship with uh, the understanding of cinema and the understanding of everything that a director does. And I very, very, very much embrace and teach the auteur theory of filmmaking, um, understanding that it's the most collaborative art form in the world, but that ultimately at the end of the day, every single, every single decision ultimately comes back down and bounces into the director's brain and out again. So um, so I've really got a great appreciation of directing as an art form through my year spent there. Mm. It's, it's very interesting. And I should note, uh, for me personally, and I think a lot of other people um, experience this if they are working in both theatre and in film and TV or screen as a whole, um, they're, for me two separate art forms because there are at a base level similarities but the techniques used in either like for acting techniques that you use in the theater and then on screen they're completely different and so it's interesting I I really love uh, the idea of going from theater to film because I think it's a little bit easier whereas I think when you see screen actors you know obviously the best of the best are amazing at anything you're like you could do anything and that would be great but I think some people it is harder to go from screen to transition into theatre because I think there's a lot of techniques and a lot of things that are implemented that are so different and so when you obviously um, were doing theatre and then um, moving into screen what were the interesting things that you kind of had to learn about screen in order to one direct and then to produce and make work? Right. Well, I guess the, I, I mean, the fundamental elements of what I teach now at Sydney Film School is I teach screen storytelling. So, which is just another sort of fancy newfangled term for screenwriting. <laughs> That's essentially what I teach. And what I break down to is all the various elements uh, in screenwriting, including very much structure. And I think that's a lot of what I've learned over all the disciplines is about story structure. So mm. yes, theater and film are different, but really storytelling doesn't differ anywhere you know storytelling is the same no matter what the format so you know cave paintings showed you know a couple of cavemen and then they showed a couple of cavemen attacking a dinosaur or whatever a mammoth and then they showed a couple of cavemen eating meat and you know that's your story structure that's your beginning the middle and end there are, we don't have food we get food, we eat food, beginning, middle and end. So that's the same, you know. So whether yeah. it's theatre or cave painting or movies, a story has three acts, you know. Yeah. So understanding structure and understanding the the inherent story ideas that within the story you have to have people who want something and it's going to be difficult for them to get it and then ultimately they either got to get it or they don't and that's the end of your story. That's the kind of central fascinating concept that I, I, I've drawn from all of them. And so if you're an actor, whether or not you're acting in a play or you're acting in a movie, 
it's vital you understand your position within the storytelling of the larger picture. And that doesn't change, you know. So I've got a friend who has done an awful lot of musical theatre. And, he, you know, so he was explaining, like, how he got through years of doing Cats. And because I was like, <laughs> you know, God damn it, man. You know, didn't you get bored putting on that stuff every night and every night and do all that blah, blah, blah. And you got to, you know, run around and be Cats. And, and he was like, no, 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 no. Because every single time I went on stage, even for this single moment, and I wasn't on for very long long and I was you know prancing around as a cat I knew that at that moment the story couldn't advance without me doing that bit I was never worried about you know the choreography I was never worried about my singing voice all that just came you know to me because of my training and my abilities what concerned me every night was I had to tell this bit of the story every night that's what I was doing every single time I was on stage in front of the audience and if you can think of that as an actor you that every time you're either being the films rolling in the camera or you're literally on the stage and people can see you if you're part of the story at that moment that's what you're doing that's mm. your fundamental most important thing mm. and everything else all the technique and everything is just supporting that Mm. So when you're, you know, the guy behind the counter in the pizza parlor who says he went that away when Spider-Man comes in and says, you know, did you see a green goblin come by? Then you've got to you've got to do that moment to the best possible telling of the story that Spider-Man needs to catch a green goblin. And the reason he's entered your store right now is because the green goblin just went through your store. So, you know, be in that movie and tell that story beat. Yeah. You know what I mean? And likewise, if you're on stage and you're a spear carrier and, you know, the king <laughs> says, you know, Huth Hamlet walked by and you say, that way, my lord, same thing. You're telling that story. <laughs> I, from that voice that you just did, I definitely see why you were in theatre. <laughs> That's the theatre voice. <laughs> I've got many, many theatre voices. It's, um, it's very interesting. Like we talk about, you know, the slashy nature of creatives in our industry today. And I find that the storytelling element and the... Um, I get the script writing, whether that's for screen or theater, is something that I think a lot of people do want to um, try. And some people kind of shy away from it. I had a conversation with one of my close friends recently, and she's a, a fantastic actor, but she was um, studying at uni and she decided to pick up this um, unit in script writing. And beforehand, she thought, you know what, I like I want to write a script but I just I don't think I'm good enough like I really have no idea where to start um and so for her um class at uni she had to write a script and the um she said that she did really well and she was kind of blown away at the fact that she was like oh this is I can do this like I understand how to do this and I just thought it was very interesting that I think it can be quite daunting for people when you're like, how how do I start a script? How do I even begin? Do I have something to say? You know, and I think um, as someone who has written scripts in the past, I always love the idea of literally just starting and making a really shitty script first off. And so what when you are teaching people story storytelling um, and writing scripts, what is your advice for someone who is, has never written a script before and is like, or has never told a story in the form of screen or theater before. And they're like, 
CJ, I what I I want to learn from you, but where do I begin? Well, come study my course at Sydney <laughs> Film School. That's the best screenwriting course, um, and you will learn. But no, the, it's essential to watch an enormous amount of movies and to uh, see the the great thing about movies is that you know they kind of stumbled upon the the form of feature films as soon as possible, you know, very early on in the history of cinema, like back in the 1910s, they kind of arrived at the idea of, you know, okay, a feature film, 90, 90 minutes is a sweet spot, you know, 100 minutes, sweet spot. Anything less than 90, well, they not really till the 20s did they really come, come up with this formulation. And that's a good length and it's a good length for many reasons. And so, you know, you can watch... Obviously, we're still in prime television creative zone. It's incredible, you know, blah, 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 blah. There's lots of great television made. But watching uh, an hour-long episode of a 10-part series just does not have the same structural rigidity mm. of a really well-crafted 100-minute movie. A really well-crafted 100-minute movie has its beginning, its middle and end, has its acts, has its protagonist, has its goals, has its objectives, has its obstacles, have its, has its journey, you know, a good film. And so therefore that's the best way you can learn is to actually watch a lot of proper feature films because they're self-contained. They've got the structure within them. Uh, or if someone can point you in the right direction or you can point yourself in the right direction so that you're separating the wheat from the chaff, so that you're only watching good stuff, watch really solidly well-made short films, you know, that over mm. the course of seven minutes or 12 minutes or 15 minutes do the same thing, but that, you know, have a structure, have an arc, have a, have a protagonist that goes through a journey, that faces obstacles and defeats them, which is not what you necessarily get in an hour of television. In an mm. hour of television, you know, very often they've just pushed the story further down the road, but it doesn't have that structural stuff that you really is what you really need to learn. That's what you really need to learn off the bat is structure. Mm. Um, some people get it very quickly. Some people don't. It's interesting teaching, you know, in any given range of students, it's phenomenal how some of them, for some of them writing is, like a duck to water and some of them it's very very difficult i also at the school i because the sydney film school and the sydney actors school and they're both within the same yeah. greater entity and i teach it both and i teach screenwriting at both so i'm teaching screenwriting to film students to students who've gone to sydney film school to, to learn filmmaking but then i'm also teaching them to acting students who've gone to sydney actors school to learn acting and so they're two very different student bodies, right? They're very different and they've got very different goals, but I'm teaching them the same thing. But I teach it I teach it relatively the same. There are different timelines and there's different amounts of hours I spend teaching them, et cetera. But essentially, my, my basic teaching philosophy is the same, but it's very interesting watching them as two distinct student bodies because the actors, some of them really take to it because, you know, the best actors are storytellers and that's why they're doing it. You know, the worst actors are doing it out of vanity. The worst actors are doing uh, because they think they look good and they think they'll look good on camera and they want other people to look at the screen and go like, oh, don't you look good? Those are the worst actors. But the best actors are the actors who, since they were six, 
could tell a story at the dinner table. You know, something happened, funny happened to them at school that day and they could then tell that story at the dinner table. They're natural storytellers and that's why they want to get up on screen is to tell stories. And they can write. And some of the best writing I've seen in my years at both of those schools have actually come from the actors mm. because the actors who are also good at acting because they are storytelling is what they're actually good at. You know what I mean? And then yeah. there, are, there are all sorts of techniques that can be learned, you know, um, around screen storytelling, around screenwriting, because it is a craft, you know, and the art is the art is sort of in things like dialogue. You know, yeah. some people have an ear for dialogue and can write great dialogue and most people can't and don't. You know <laughs> what I mean? But there's a lot of craft that can be learned around screenwriting. Yeah, it's. I was just about to say with, I think, why actors are good at writing scripts is the dialogue thing. If you spend your whole career kind of dialogue is, well, and the nuances of your actions and stuff like that, but dialogue is the thing coming out of your mouth. So you know how things sound and how a conversation goes. Mm. Whereas I think that's where some things fall short is when they're like, I need this person to say this thing and then this person's going to respond in that way. But that's not how people talk. Mm. And so I definitely understand why actors might um, uh, find it easier than other people. And good actors, the best actors, spend their lives observing, right? Yeah. About as staring, spying, staring <laughs> at other people, spying on other people, moving closer to that interesting table near them at the cafe and listening and watching because they're observing. They're observing human mannerisms and human behaviour and they're listening to how people speak. And it's, it's interesting, you know, as I say, good actors do that, but it's interesting how a lot of filmmakers sometimes don't do that. You know what I mean? And I guess I'm sort of, I got to correct myself in a way because on the one hand I say, see as many films as possible. What you don't want to then do is then just sit down and rewrite other films. You know, you still need to actually go spy on people at the next cafe table or go to, you know, Uganda or (laughs) go to a suburb you've never been to or go to France or whatever and observe real people and, you know, get inspired that way. Because otherwise you will just end up writing the 10th copy of the 10th copy of, Last House on the Left. Oh, yes. And the short film thing is interesting as well. Um, I think, you know, as you said, watching really solid short films because short films are a great way to start out, but they're they're not easy. I think people think, oh, it's only short. This is going to be easy. No, you have to be so succinct in what you're saying and what you're doing within that 10 to 15 minutes or however long we are going to say a short film is. And I think a lot of people, when you don't do that well, it falls so short. But when you do it well and you can get your point across and be succinct in the way that you do that and however many locations you have, I think it's it's so amazing. And I think a lot of people try to do so much in a short film to make it so uh, thought-provoking and so amazing-looking when you just can't do that. Mm. You have to go back to the basics and go, okay, what are we saying with this script? What? Why are we telling this story? How are we going to get that across visually? 
in 10 minutes. It's tough. Yeah. Nothing about filmmaking is easy, uh, but certainly making a short film is is no easier necessarily than than making any other type of film. There's one that I'm really into at the moment. I've been into it for a couple of years. I think it was made in 2018. It's an Australian film. It was shot in Sydney um, by a woman named Shelley Lauman. I think it's L-A-U-M-A-N, Shelley Lauman, called Birdie. And it's seven minutes or it's seven and a half minutes. And it's amazing. And it's got very little dialogue. Um, almost no dialogue actually so it's told all visually it's it's a very modest film and I know it's available online because Fox Searchlight Pictures bought it when they saw it at a festival yeah so her life would have changed in that moment Um, so you can easily google it online B-I-R-D-I-E that is a good example to me of what you're talking about a perfect perfect short film that just doesn't overextend itself knows exactly what it wants to be does it within a modest way and has realms of meaning within it and it's exciting and thrilling and scary and wonderful all of that stuff as well Mm. um i was listening to an episode of your podcast yesterday Um, oh which one um so i listened to the one that was with kitty green about the assistant oh yeah film the assistant and it was very interesting to me um listening to you talking to her and as a film critic and as someone who i guess Uh, looks at films in a critical sense it was very interesting all of the questions that you had for her about different things and a lot of her answers were like oh I just yeah that just happened on the day and that's how it kind of worked out like you were asking her about um, the Fruit Loops in the movie, mm-hmm. and you thought, oh, it's like it's childlike and all that sort of stuff. And she was like, oh, we just needed color in the scene. <laughs> and so it brings up an interesting point about storytelling and making films and critiquing films is that I think a lot of the time we are looking for meaning within the film and what that means for us. And it's so interesting that a lot of that was by accident or that wasn't intentional. They weren't even thinking about that when they were filming on the day. It, that just really interested me about that interview. It is, and it's it's true. And what you're getting at, obviously, yes, you you are looking for meaning. And as film critics or people who who read films and respond to films very deeply, you are looking for meaning. You are looking for things that engage you and mean something personal to you. But also, I would suggest that very often good artists and great artists don't realize how much meaning they're putting into it because what they're doing is they're operating on their own vibrations of being good at what they do. So it is happening subconsciously. So Kitty Green, I can say to Kitty Green, oh my God, your choice of Fruit Loops for that moment (laughs) was so perfect because to me it represented the fact that she needed childhood, she needed warmth, she needed like the embrace of her parents, she needed something to make of it. And Kitty can say like, oh no, 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 it was more about we just needed that color. But I see on a deeper level, she actually, when she, when, when someone said, what, what cereal do you want? We could have these or these or the Fruit Loops. She was like, oh my God, no, it's got to be Fruit Loops. Yeah. Even though she doesn't know instantly, she can't exactly tell you why it's got to be Fruit Loops. It's because she knows on a subconscious level, on a deep level, because it, she's telling a story and she's a great artist that Fruit Loops are the right choice. And then it takes someone like me to explain to her why she made that choice. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Yeah. But she actually did make that choice yeah. for the same reasons that I think she did. She just doesn't know she did. I believe that, you know, and there is this this whole critical theory that very often, you know, great filmmakers have no idea of 
the depths of meaning that they put into their films because what they're doing is they're telling the story in the in the best way that they can and yeah as i say and they don't quite realize the 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 reasons they're doing it and then it takes people like me to come along and be like well i see why mm. i get why and also it can be very personal you know so a filmmaker can put something in there and they're kind of in denial about the fact that the reason they've made a choice is because of their childhood and then you look at it and you're like well of course steven spielberg keeps doing this in his films because look at you know his childhood look at where he was when he was eight years old this is constantly doing this again and again but he would deny it do you know what i mean yeah and it i think it raises the interesting point of intuition within filmmaking which is so powerful and i think it's something that you can't force you can't sit there and write a script and be like what is the serial which is going to signify childlike essence within this scene? Because when you're forcing that, it's almost like you're shoving it down the audience's throat and being like, this is how I want you to feel. And if you don't feel it, you don't get my film. And I think it just falls apart in those moments. So Mm. I think you can never know what points when you're creating something are going to be powerful or meaningful to someone because yeah, as you say, it's so unconscious, it's so intuitive. um, And that's so interesting to me. Mm. Yeah. And of course, what you don't want is you don't want that filmmaker that explains their choices. Oh yes. You know, you don't want her (laughs) her eating fruit loops and then someone coming along and being like comfort food. eh?" (laughs) (laughs) That seems like something you eat eat as a child. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very true. And did you, so when you were making short films, um, with did you find that with your films as well, that there were moments in it that people were saying, ah, oh, you know, you did this because, you know, you know storytelling and uh, that's what you're really good at. And so obviously you've put this thing into your film in order to speak this to me. I think... In terms of casting, kind of, yeah, maybe. Okay. I think when I cast particularly, I would make decisions that were perhaps a little offbeat, that were slightly, you know, not exactly how most people would cast a particular role. And I always had a very, very specific reason. I always knew that the person I was casting was bringing something uh, with them of their essence that I thought would reverberate and give the film greater meaning and make the script more lucid. So I'm thinking of one particular actor I used a couple of times who had a very, very particular quality. And the way I shot him and the way I used him sort of emphasized these particular qualities that I think really sort of paid off in in, the, in a couple of roles he played for me. And likewise, I can think of an actress that uh, for whom... I was doing the same thing. So yeah, in casting. And then of course you look at production design choices and stuff like that. And to a degree, certainly around certain clothing, absolutely. You know, in a short film where you've got a very constrained resources, usually obviously time, locations, budget, all of that stuff, you're you're dealing with limited resources. So production design is one of the places where you can really make an impact. And so, you know, the way I dressed this character, for example, 
um, was was highly specific. I had him getting out of bed in the morning after having sex the night before, one night stand, wearing this sort of Sulu, uh, which is a ja- which is a Fijian sarong, and, <laughs> and and it instantly was something. You know, it made him that guy. Yeah. You know, he didn't go to bed after having a one night stand. You know, and then put on boxer shorts or briefs. Or that thing which is in some terrible Hollywood movies where they pull on like jeans with no underpants and I just thought, no, that's not good. And the Um, jeans go on so easily as well, whereas when I put jeans on, I have to like kick my legs out multiple times to shimmy them up my body. No, he put on on a Fijian Sulu and it was (laughs) mysterious and kind of sexy and kind of elegant and kind of, you know, different and kind of exotic and everything. So choices like that, you know, you can make... Um, even with limited resources. Of course, you know, if you were doing it at the other level, if you were making feature films with big resources, it would be really fun. It would be really fun to be able to really code your movies. And in, what I mean by that is, you know, that we're, to really take the time so that everything, everything in the frame meant something greater than itself that had had meaning. So, you know, if someone was wearing a hat, you know, that that hat was the perfect hat that said so much about them and the times they're living in and the film itself and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That would be really fun. And, of course, it's stuff like that that led perfectionists like Stanley Kubrick to, you know, end up taking over a year to make Eyes Wide Shut because he had limitless resources and he could just like to spend forever picking and choosing. So in his films, every single thing you see has meaning, but that's because he had the time and the money to be able to give you that. Mm. And the interest, I think. Yes. That's something that I like, you're explaining that and you're like, that is so interesting. And I'm like, for me, I don't, I don't want to be the person to do that. Oh, really? <laughs> I want to be the person that shows up on set and you go, okay, so here's what we have for you to wear and this is the room and so feel it out. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, I get this. But, and I appreciate that. And I think it's important to not try and do everything in the industry. Yeah. And so I can definitely, I'm really starting to now be like, you know what? That's not for me, but it sounds interesting for you. (laughs) And it's good to realize if you don't want to become a film director, because directing films, I would suggest my opinion is like the hardest art, you know, it's the, it's the craziest, hardest art. And, um, the, the amount of people who try and waste a lot of time and money and fail is because they think they can do it is a bit sad. You've got to be a bit nuts. You've got to be, you've got to be a bit nuts in terms of being a perfectionist. You know, you really do have to obsess about all the choices. Hmm. You can't just be lackluster, like this will do, or that shot's fine, or, oh no, let's just cast her. Because a mistake like that just reverberates through your whole movie. Hmm. You know, like any clunky moment in a film has the ability to pull the entire audience out of it, you know? So on a feature film level, you know, let's say you're making a hundred minute film it's kind of got to work the entire way through. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Very few films are perfect. Most films are flawed. Most films have moments that don't work as well as other moments. But in any film, a a truly bad moment, a true moment that doesn't work can derail the whole thing, you know, for the next few minutes for the audience. Yeah. Or in this day and age, when more people are watching at home, can just turn some, get someone to turn it off. You know, they're like, "Eh, nah, next. (laughs) Well, it's interesting to watch bad films as well. And I think, you know, with the streaming services that we have access to now, you have access to some bad films. And, you know, in 
the recent weeks I have turned on films going, you know what, like I just want to watch an easy going film and you turn it on and 15 minutes in, I'm like, this hurts my soul so much. Yeah. And But it's interesting to realize why it's bad, to not be like, oh, this is this is shit. I'm not going to watch this. But to actually go, okay, why do I think this is a bad film? What are the elements that are making it not good? And it's interesting. Usually it's not so much the actor's fault. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it definitely is. And then sometimes it's the bizarre storytelling elements. I remember I was watching this comedy. I can't remember what it was called, but um, it had Kat Dennings in it as one of the main. And it was clearly something before she'd done WandaVision. And so it was like she was playing the best friend of this main blonde character, essentially, and she was going over for Thanksgiving and for the God, first, that sounds like so many movies. I know, I know. And I don't know why I put it on. I thought, you know, Kat Dennings. Because you wanted something easy. I wanted thought, something easy. That looks yeah. charming. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the storytelling for the first part was not great. But what made me turn it off was for some reason, the only part in the film, they had a character come in and the way the character introduced themselves was they turned to the camera broke the fourth wall and did this very seductive explanation of themselves and then it cuts back to the scene and they hadn't done this for the first 15 to 20 minutes and I was like absolutely not Mm. absolutely not I'm turning this off like I just what was that you know but it's just it's very interesting as you say you know I should have known reading the description of the film in the first place and going, oh, I'll put this on. A Thanksgiving film will be fine. <laughs> and that, this is the thing, though. You can't read the description of a film to know because there are good Thanksgiving films and there are bad Thanksgiving yeah. films. There are good war films or bad war films. There are good horror films or bad horror films. Any given logline of a film could be a good film or a bad film. What you can count on is usually the director. You know, if it's a director you like, you know, then watch another film by that director in the same way that you listen to an album by an artist that you like or you read a book by an author you like. You know, if you like the work of a director, then you'll probably like other work by that director. Or you you got to read the critics. you got to read me. you got to read people. you got to find critics who you trust and read them. Mm. Because literally, you know, the story of a person who goes out on a first date and discovers that it's um, blah, blah, and the blah, blah could be the most brilliant film in the entire world or could be a piece of turd, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's all in the execution. Yeah, you know, there's only true. so many stories. Yeah, that's very, very true. Um, I noticed with the short films that you've made in the past, a few of them are comedic and I wondered if you had a preference in regards to writing. Do you enjoy writing in comedy or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what I write. Yeah. I have written a thriller and I keep thinking I'm going to write, you know, a beautifully modulated, gorgeous piece of drama But when I start doing that, inevitably the characters start getting funny on me and the drama becomes a comedy. It's Mm. just, it's, it's, it's what I write and it's what I write best. And it's what I just find that I write. Yeah. I I have enjoyed writing, writing thriller as well to a degree, but um, ultimately I just, I'm drawn to comedy, which is not necessarily what I watch the most of by any means. I mainly watch sort of dramas, 
But um, yeah, I, I'm drawn to writing comedy. Yeah, I well, I completely am the same. And I think something that I always talk about with comedy and why I love it so much is that comedy just shows the humanity in the situation. It lets us laugh at how human the characters are. It's not kind of sugarcoating anything for the viewer and that's why it can be funny. And so I think it's really interesting to approach certain life situations from a comedic perspective so we can be like, oh my God, that person, oh, or we can say, oh, I, I relate to that. That's like me. And yeah. I think that that's very interesting as a viewer. Yeah, although that sort of comedy has become so dominant now, cringe comedy, you know, comedy yeah. of people's flaws going to the point of being so far that you're constantly embarrassed for them, <laughs> you know? And yes. sometimes, sometimes that's what I have to turn off. You know, if I start something and seven minutes in, I'm like, okay, the, the basic humor in this film is cringe comedy. I might not last because I feel so deeply and I get so embarrassed for the characters and that's what you're meant to be doing, right? That I just can't bear it. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And I think what, what is also popular at the moment is the, the black comedy, which is like you're taking a very serious uh, topic um, to write about and making it somehow funny or not that it's laughing at the situation but it's just showing this person is so broken and so human that it kind of makes you take a breath and goes oh okay someone else feels the same and I'm okay you're not watching a drama or a thriller which is so intense and is like here's the situation and and we need to face it and the characters are kind of you know glamorized in a way even if you know not appearance wise they're still glamorized in the way that the situation goes in dramas generally speaking um and so that's why I think comedy is so interesting especially black comedy is it so broken yeah black comedy is a sweet spot you know black mm. comedy is very very difficult and if you can get it right it's just fantastic yeah definitely um I want to touch on your lecturing mm. as well. So you said that you're doing lectures around town. <laughs> What's yeah. your words? Um, so how did you get into lecturing? Like that's uh, such a different form of like standing up in front of a group of people and explaining, you know, film, I guess, and cinema. Yeah. And my lectures, like I don't stand behind a podium. Like I get out and I walk up and down and I speak sort of to the audience directly. So they're very, okay. very, very, very engaged with the audience. They're very, very, they're more like performance pieces in a way. You know, they're not dry, they're not academic and I'm not reading from notes. I mean, I give myself some bullet point notes and uh, I've got video and stuff that I refer to, mm. but generally like I'm just speaking, speaking, speaking from memory and, and, and jumping from point to point within my own brain. And um, I got into it because someone asked me to do one and then one turned into more and then people start hearing about you and you just start getting engaged at various places. So that's how it, it works by word of mouth. Do you know what I mean? But what, so for example, I'm doing a series on the history of cinema. I'm just sort of gradually, very slowly over the course of years, making my way from the birth of cinema up to the present day. But wow. you know, that's going on at a club in city at the moment and we're only up to the fifties and we're deep <laughs> in a year too. So like that can just keep on going. Yeah. And at the art gallery, I'm in the middle of a core, uh, a series, which is called the art of the cinema. And what I'm doing in that one is I'm explaining just what in the first lecture 
what a director do, does. And in the second lecture, what a screenwriter does. And in the third lecture, what a screen actor does for an hour each time. And so people who have always heard that a film is directed by so-and-so, but have always wondered just exactly what that means and mm. all the things that that means and basically what the auteur theory is. And, you know, with screenwriting, so many people don't really understand what screenwriters do and how they do it. And so they don't know how to talk about it. Yeah. So when they sit down with their friends afterwards at the pub to talk about a movie that they've seen, no one can really talk about the writing because it's not the same as talking about a novel that you've read at book club. It's a completely different way of talking about the writing because you have to understand how the writing sort of underscores the film that you've seen, the finished product. And then, you know, everyone can say like, oh, you know, Tom Hanks was very good or so-and-so was very good or that girl who played the shopkeeper was very good but very few people are able to talk beyond that yeah do you know what i mean so teaching people the art of screen acting from the beginning from like silent days to now and especially letting people understand the revolution that happened in the 1950s with the actor studio and marlon brando and how a certain sort of stylization of acting changed into the quest for naturalism is fundamental to allow people to understand why modern screen acting looks the way it does because you can't actually say that Heath Ledger is necessarily a better actor than Cary Grant but if you look at two Heath Ledger performances and two Cary Grant performances of course Heath Ledger looks better because Cary Grant looks like he's doing the same thing in every one and so you have to understand the context that that's what was required of him at the time yeah do you know what I mean and that's yeah. the scripts that were being written for him and that's what people wanted and that's so it was like it wasn't his ability to do different things it was his ability to actually bring as much of himself to the roles every time that was his mark of success so and it also engages with how acting has um engaged with technology do you know like part of the reason people in films from 1932 stand stock t still and stand too close to each other and look ridiculous and sound ridiculous and sound too loud is because there was one microphone hanging from the ceiling <laughs> and they had to be recorded by that microphone and they couldn't move their arms because if they moved their arms it would be picked up by the mic <laughs> so you know they, they were probably much better actors than they look but they were stricken by the technology at the time yeah. whereas by the time Heath Ledger was doing candy he was like able to literally barely make a sound and it would be picked up yeah yeah, yeah. definitely um so when you talk about the 50s are you talking about the kind of golden age of Hollywood which was the series that was on Netflix I think it was called Hollywood it had Samara Weaving in it um and a couple of other great actors um and Maud Apatow and it was um, it was showing the whole like the actors they get hired to be a studio actor and so they're on a payroll for that specific studio and so they come in and you know uh, the studio has their kind of uh, troop of actors essentially is that the kind of period that you're well, talking about the transition from that to out of that so they were called contract okay. players and yeah. so yeah so mgm would hire you as a contract player and you'd be under contract to mgm and yes they would type you so if they decided that you were a secretarial type mm. you might actually then play secretaries in 
50 films and never be allowed out of that. And so that became your career. And so that was another thing that hamstrung actors. So you might have been able to play all sorts of other parts, but unfortunately they just moved you from secretary to secretary or occasionally you might play a maid or whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, they decided you were a leading lady and that's what you played, but then you didn't get to play, you know, bad girls do you know what I mean and vice and all of this stuff and then you know gradually various stars use their power to break that down Betty Davis Marilyn Monroe there were some others a lot of females in particular Mm. started to use their clout to sort of get out of contracts and take the studios to court etc etc wow and then so you've got the breakdown of that which frees up actors to take different roles but then you've got the actor's studio which imports the method from Russia from Russian stages and standards Slavsky, uh in the late 1800s in Russia and bringing that to the screen. And so you've got actors like Marlon Brando and Rod Steiger and then ultimately moving into people like Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Dustin Hoffman and all these actors who bring a naturalism to acting that looks completely different. So basically, by the time you're in sort of the late 60s and into the early 70s, all acting looks completely different from anything sort of prior to 1951. It just looks and sounds different because it has fundamentally changed. Before that, people were always acting in a particular style. And after that, everyone was striving for naturalism. Mm, But, you know, Humphrey Bogart was never striving for naturalism. He was aware of how he looked on camera. He was aware of how a line sounded. You know, he was aware that you can't say, here's looking at you, kid, and make it sound naturalistic. So you've got to make it sound cool. You know what I mean? He, he, He made himself look and sound cool. He didn't make and look himself sound natural. He never tried. That wasn't the point. Yeah. It's always interesting when an actor's nowadays doing something that they get typecast in and then they get the one um, role which is completely different. Like a lot of, I think you find it with a lot of comedy actors that, you know, after many years um, doing comedy, they do that one film which is a drama and is very serious and everyone just gets blown away as if they're like, oh my God, I can't believe that person can do drama. It's like, of course, they were just getting typecast for so long in the roles that you loved because you loved them. The studios go, oh, okay, well, we have this uh, bumbly, funny guy character. Of course, we're going to cast Jonah Hill in it and he did that for so long and then when he he gets the role in the wolf of wall street everyone lost their goddamn minds <laughs> but it's like of course he could do this all along it's just the typecasting thing is such an interesting area to talk about mm. moneyball too he was very good at moneyball as yeah, well yeah 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 so um well we have been talking for a while, so we'll wrap up now. But thank you so much for being here today, CJ. I wondered if you had anything to plug before we go, any lectures, anything like that? My my uh, podcast has been on hiatus throughout COVID because I'm just, I just didn't want to really do it when I couldn't have people in, but I'll restart that at some point. So it's called Movie Land with CJ Johnson. And when I kick that back off, some new episodes will get out there. Movie Land, one word, M-O-V-I-E-L-A-N-D. Movie Land with CJ Johnson. <laughs> um, 
Follow me on Letterboxd. It's fun. I, I hate social media. I despise it. But Letterboxd is not social media. Letterboxd is a film logging platform. So follow me on Letterboxd. That's CJ Johnson on Letterboxd. Uh, it's where you can log films and look at what other people think about films. And uh, it's good fun. And I suppose listen to me on The Nightlife on ABC Radio. And if you want to hire me as a speaker to talk about any aspect of cinema, uh, you can just look for me on the web, cjjohnson.com.au. That's C djjohnson.com.au and you'll find more information there. You definitely do um, radio and podcasting with the way that you just said that website. (laughs) (laughs) You've done this before, I can tell. Many, 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 many times. And I will link all of that information below as well. But CJ, thank you so much for joining me and being my first in-person podcast in a very long time because of COVID. Um, And we will talk to you soon. Lovely to be here. Thank you.